This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. We're really glad to have uh, Michael Matias here with us. I think many of you know um, the piece that uh, he and Andrew Stern labored uh, successfully for many years on facade. Um, Michael is uh, an associate professor now of computer science at UC Santa Cruz, and uh, he runs there the Expressive Intelligence Studio. Um, in this group, a dozen PhD students and several master students are now researching with him in the intersection of artificial intelligence, art, and design, which should certainly indicate that uh, he is an AI researcher as well as an artist, um, and, uh, and has the research group and does uh, the work of running that group to, uh, to prove it. <laughs> Michael also <laughs> teaches um, undergraduates there who are pursuing a, uh, a BS in a new major, computer science, computer game design, um, which is, uh, I think, less than two years old, or around yes, less than two, two years old. Years old uh, and they already have uh, 250 undergraduates in the major at Santa Cruz. Uh, so uh, Michael Matias's concept, to try to condense it to part of a sentence, is that artificial intelligence exists in culture and allows for expression and the creation of art. He furthermore sees that Art is not just an application of AI. Artistic practice can further our understanding of AI and AI research. He's developed his idea of expressive AI through projects that include Office Plant Number 1, Terminal Time, Facade, and Tableau Machine. Facade has been shown at art museums and in game festivals, has been written up, uh, for instance, in a, a feature article in the Atlantic Monthly, uh, as well as in a host of academic papers and game publications. In Gamasutra in 2005, Ernest Adams called it possibly the most important video game of the last 10 years. And uh, the, in the New York Times, Facade was hailed as the future of video games. Michael and his collaborator, Andrew Stern, uh, made Facade available for free online, and uh, many people have taken them up on their <laughs> offer of the game. Um, by the summer, I, I have no idea, and I'm not even sure Michael does on the what an estimate of current downloads are, but by the summer of 2005, um, it had been downloaded more than half a million times, uh, which seems to present a very practical example of AI mm -hmm. that people can use and also uh, a successful independent game, if, uh, if there ever was one. So I'm very glad to have Michael, um, one of the most influential AI researchers and one of the most important computer game creators. Um, here, I'm also very glad to have him as a fellow blogger on Grand Text Auto. Um, <laughs> absent blogger. Please join me in welcoming him and, and thanking him for, for coming here to speak with us this afternoon at, at MIT. All right. Thanks, Nick, for that very kind introduction. Am I supposed to use that uh, microphone as well? No, 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 no. Just, you've got me? Okay. Thank you. Uh, Nick, maybe you can show the Okay. All right. Uh, so today, um, what I wanted to talk about was uh, the authoring challenge for interactive storytelling. So I'm not going to talk so much about framing um, expressive AI as kind of a broad practice. And I was actually, a few days ago, I was at RISD, and there I was sort of talking more about expressive AI as an art practice and gave kind of a more uh, artist talk 
style talk on expressive AI as kind of a conceptual and theoretical practice. Um, here I really wanted to focus on uh, sort of the problem, and I really do see it as a problem, of um, authoring for interactive storytelling. Uh, so first, I guess we should talk about what we mean by interactive storytelling, because it could mean a bunch of different things. So I want to narrow down what it means for the purposes of this talk. So, you know, choose your own adventure books are certainly a form of interactive storytelling. I'm not uh, referring to those, though, when, I, when I'm talking about authoring challenges. Um, tabletop role-playing is another form of interactive storytelling. Um, embedded game narratives are kind of the most popular commercial form of uh, interactive storytelling. So, um, uh, you know, Im embedding uh, generally... Um, linear or quasi-linear narrative sequences into a game world. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of non-linear interaction you can have the, with the world, but it has no influence on the um, linear evolution of the story. Um, hypertext uh, narratives, um, and probably the kind that's actually closest to what I really want to talk about is actually interactive fiction. And in some ways, um, facade is... Uh, to some degree, continuing in that tradition. That's probably the interactive storytelling form uh, that interactive drama is most, uh, most similar to. And in some ways, you can see kind of IF and, uh, uh, and, and interactive drama, and certainly the interactive drama dream as first described and kind of promulgated by Brenda Laurel in her 1987 dissertation, um, really was kind of looking towards the idea of the Star Trek holodeck um, as, uh, as a holy grail. And I think the holodeck might have even been around by 87. It was first introduced in the cartoon Star Trek, which I used to watch as a kid. I don't know how many people remember the cartoon Star Trek, but that's what, uh, uh, where the holodeck was uh, introduced, and then uh, it was brought back for the next generation. Um, and then, you know, there's a number of uh, theorists who I assume you study in, I'm sure, the CMS program who have, you know, sort of problematized the notion of the holodeck as to whether that even uh, sort of conceptually makes sense as a vehicle for storytelling. I mean, people such as Marilla Ryan have, uh, have, have sort of challenged it as a model, you know, certainly Bernstein. Um, and so, you know, maybe uh, uh, the holy deck, the hollow grail, you know, that's... Uh, <laughs> But, uh, but it still serves, I think, as a, as a kind of conceptual beacon for this idea of um, first-person immersion in sort of a living world where your actions cause kind of um, and lead to an organic evolution of a storyline as you interact with characters. Um, and, uh, you know, trying to realize uh, uh, such a model of uh, interactive storytelling quickly um, leads one into artificial intelligence and AI approaches because uh, non AI-based approaches that involve sort of manual scripting or hand authoring of sort of possible alternatives and kind of pre-scripting possible alternatives exponentially blow up. As an, as an authoring approach, uh, they just don't scale. Um, and so, you know, within the AI and story uh, uh, community, you know, there's work on story generation, story understanding, and those are really classic. Story generation and story understanding actually were, that work's been going on since the... Um, late 60s, early 70s in AI uh, and sort of preceded actually thinking about employing that in the context of interactive storytelling. Uh, it was sort of more done as kind of a cognitivist uh, research agenda, trying to understand the essence of story by building procedural models of storiness. Um, but then, uh, uh, the, you know, again, starting uh, to some degree with Brenda Laurel, um, she surveyed that work in her, uh, in her uh, writings in the 80s to kind of say, hey, how can we mine this to actually kind of realize this vision of this kind of first-person, interactive, immersive, um, morphable story space? Uh, you know, drama management and autonomous characters are kind of research areas that grew out of the story generation and story understanding uh, 
world specifically aimed at addressing interaction and how do you do this kind of, you know, mixed initiative, online, um, iterative story generation uh, in the presence of interaction. So, um, you know, as I look at the state of intelligence story systems research, I, I find myself uh, dismayed, <laughs> which, is, uh, uh, which is why I talk about sort of, you know, the authoring challenge or really the authoring problem. Um, and, uh, and part of that dismay comes from um, the lack of response um, I've seen to facade in terms of, in, in terms of people trying to like one-up it or beat it. Or, you know, when, when Andrew and I, you know, first conceived the project, it was very much we wanted, besides it being sort of a personal art project and just the kind of interactive experience we personally wished existed, so we made it. Um, there was a sense of trying to kind of throw down the gauntlet and say, okay, people have been kind of, you know, uh, pussyfooting around the interactive story question, trying to find all these sort of design-based dodges around the question. Um, uh, I mean, that would be a, an uncharitable way of, of describing it. And so why aren't people just trying to, you know, take the bull by the horns and really do, you know, first-person autonomous characters, language-based interaction, um, uh, radically nonlinear story progression. So let's try to build an instance of it, and, you know, it'll have all kinds of warts, and, you know, facade certainly has lots of warts, but then it'll be out there, sort of at least show that this is a non-empty space, you know, that people could be working in. And then, you know, a couple of years later, people will be kicking our butts with, uh, with the next latest and greatest thing that dethrones facade and, uh, and, uh, and, and succeeds in many ways where facade failed, um, and that hasn't happened. Um, there haven't really been those kind of responses to facade. And most of the work that's uh, going on in intelligence story systems research um, really is kind of like the, the first three bullets on this sl slide. There's a lot of theory, sort of people who argue for different approaches. They, they sketch possible systems. They kind of sketch boxes and arrows diagrams of what should be in a system, what kind of knowledge you should represent. And sort of what it means to win in that space is you win arguments by rhetorical force. You sort of, you know, make a rhetorical argument that uh, hopefully convinces your audience that, you know, the boxes and arrows you've drawn on the page are better than someone else's boxes and arrows. Um, then there's been a fair number of actually implemented architectures, fewer than the uh, theory papers, but um, a fair number of architectures, which are, you know, implemented architectures for drama managements, autonomous characters, uh, um, architecture, story generators, um, but they tend to not have any, you know, content, which I know is a word... Uh, Nick dislikes, and I, I, I share, you know, content makes it sound like it's just some, uh, um, uh, you know, commodifiable, you know, thing you stick in the system. Oh, I need some content added now, right? But, but what I mean by that term is uh, that there, there isn't actually an experience to have as you interact with these systems. It's more like here's an architecture and here's some sort of, you know, dummy story content. And so you can see the thing sort of turn over and you can do kind of algorithmic system evaluations, but you can't play anything. Um, and so you win arguments by a mixture of rhetorical force and system evaluations in that space. Then there's an even smaller number of actual prototypes, implemented architectures, plus enough content to actually have a playable demo of something. Um, and so that, you know, sort of adds the, the, the previous, um, uh, you know, moves for winning the argument um, and adds to that giving a good demo, right? So those are, uh, and there's been very few complete playable experiences where you actually um, have done the work to do an, the authorial and audience sort of response evaluation that you can um, only have from having actually tried to create a complete experience. Um, and uh, this really limits the exploration of the design space. 
You know, you ha we have all these architectures and approaches, and you know, they're sort of like, you know, the autonomous character architectures kind of theoretically posed coming out of our ears, um, various approaches to drama management. What are they good for? Uh, we have no notion of like for different kinds of stories or different ones appropriate. Are there sort of different genres of interactive storytelling that will sort of correspond to different technical commitments in the architectures? That would be very interesting, um, but, but we really have no idea. Um, and you know, research progress really requires building complete systems, which is an old idea in AI. I mean, the Oz Project argued about, you know, argued this for interactive drama since the late 80s. Um, Shank and Abelson were arguing this for language phenomenon since the 70s, and Minsky was arguing this for semantic systems since the 60s, that you have to actually build complete systems to sort of understand uh, what the heck you're doing in a space to actually make research progress. And this is sort of a twist on that, because what it means to build a complete system is also to actually engage in content creation, to engage in an art practice as well. Um, this, you know, limits uptake of ideas into the interactive entertainment industry. Um, there's sort of this sense as, you know, with facade-like systems, they're either perceived as sort of not real or sort of way too hard. Oh, there, you know, that's some kind of crazy thing, and yeah, it sort of worked, but we could never imagine putting that in a commercial game or a commercial experience uh, because it's, you know, there, there are no other examples or very few examples to triangulate between. Um, and there's really a failure to empower large numbers of people to create their own interactive stories. Um, so this is, to my mind, sort of like providing reading literacy without any ability to write, uh, which I, I find some, uh, somewhat frustrating. Um, so to, to talk about, you know, uh, what I'd like to do in the rest of the talk is talk about what the authoring challenges were in facade in particular, not so much focusing on the system architecture. I mean, there will be technical content, but I really want to talk about more how we structured um, our game and story content within that architecture and the authoring challenges that that uh, posed, and then sort of loop back around to this problem of, well, now, you know, given, you know, what we had to do to, you know, kind of create facade, um, what, how can we make authoring easier, or is making authoring easier what we want to do? Should we build, be building authoring tools? Um, and I do have some tool-based work going on in my group now, but there's, for me, still some kind of unanswered questions about whether that's even that the right thing to do. So we'll kind of loop back around to that after uh, looking in detail about um, sort of content structuring in facade. Um, I, uh, I will show uh, an obligatory clip of facade interaction. I'm not sure. I'm assuming many people in the audience have seen it or played it before, um, and I do not need... SETI at home to be running, thank you. Um, uh, but I do, I do want to just to ground the discussion, show you know, a, a brief clip of, of people playing. This is just sort of a montage of a number of different players interacting. Every time you see sort of a blank wipe on the screen, that's actually a cut. That's not, so it's not just a single linear experience. Um, we've actually tried to sort of cut in a bunch of different variants of people interacting uh, with the system to give some sense of the range. Woo. Ah, I'm so happy you could make it. We haven't seen you in so long. How's it going, man? So, um, player interacts conversationally through oh, typing. Great. I mean, really, really great. Come on in. And you have sort of standard, you know, WASD navigation in the space. Hi, how are you? Oh, it's so nice to see you. It feels like it's been forever. Yeah, how, how, how are you doing? Uh, I just asked him that. Well, I can ask him too. Oh. <laughs> and I've got to say, you look 
really good. Well, it's funny how after a full day's work designing magazine ads, Grace finds the time to decorate and redecorate. <laughs> I guess it's just the artist in me dying to get out. You know, for this corner of the room, I had a desire for something big and bold. Yeah, this is a huge couch. acoustics. Then Grace buys all of this ridiculously expensive furniture that just sucks up your voice when you're talking. I feel like someone's muffling me when I sit on her new couch. <laughs> See, Grace? As always, you're the only one unhappy with your decorating. Right, I know. I'll never be satisfied with it. I shouldn't get so obsessed about it. It's just not worth it. Ugh, where's my drink? <laughs> So there's oh, physical interaction as well. Grace, aren't you glad we invited him over? We're going to have to turn up the thermostat if we're going to talk about sex. Tripp, no, that's not funny. Come on. <laughs> Andrew, you know that flirting with me is only going to make me wish I'd married you instead of Tripp. Drinking, I have the simplest tastes. I'm uh, always satisfied with the best. So, what's your point? Can I interest you in a single malt scotch? It's primo. I served them at our last party. They were a smash. Martinis. Perfect. Classic. Great idea. Well, it didn't take long for you two to bond or whatever. Tripp thinks he's at his classiest when he's on the serving end of a swizzle stick. Why don't I make us one of my new drink inventions? I call it Grace's Inner Soul. It's a mixture of Chardonnay, bitters, and lots of ice. <laughs> um, now, okay, so one word. the first-person cocktail glass, all right. <laughs> so that gives some sense of uh, what an interaction with facade is like. Um, as you see, it's, it's primarily kind of language-based interaction uh, through dialogue by typing. There are physical interactions such as hugging, kissing, comforting, referring to objects by pointing. Um, looking at objects can trigger responses. If you go and like stare at the wedding picture for a while, and you know, that will be recognized as like, oh, you're bringing up the wedding picture. Maybe we should talk about that. So there's sort of you know, physical and navigation-based object references they respond to. Uh, but it primarily is the sort of dialogue interaction with these autonomous characters. Um, and then there's a, a drama management system that's um, sort of sequencing and guiding the behavior repertoires of the autonomous characters to try to make a story progression happen uh, as you interact with the characters. So um, when we were first making, uh, uh, you know, in the early design stage of Facade, we were trying to figure out really how to structure this dialogue-based interaction between uh, 
uh, trip and grace as games, right? Because we were, we were trying to go for kind of a, a, a game-like interaction by which we mean that, you know, there, there are ways to form goals with respect to the conversation, to try to make certain things happen, to try to get on Grace's good side or Trip's good side. There's an internal scoring system. There is a sense of like who's liking you more at this moment. You can explicitly try to manipulate that. Um, but it took us a while to kind of converge on how to create a game-like interaction around dialogue. And our big inspiration for that was going to uh, pop transactional psychology and looking at uh, um, books like Games People Play. Um, so these are basically, uh, you know, pop transactional psych, for those of you who might not have uh, read these books in the 70s, <laughs> were, um, uh, was really looking basically at head games and how people play head games with each other. And they, you know, and they have, you know, I, I mean, I love the names of the games and games people play. Like, you know, now I've got you, you son of a bitch. You know, that's like, <laughs> that's like, the, you know, the name of one of the games in there, right? And that's, so we're sort of leafing through this thing. Oh, maybe we could implement that. No, this one's great. And that, you know, and, and w what was nice about this approach was that it did sort of structure, uh, you know, uh, human dialogue interaction as a game, but the stakes of the game and the score of the game were really these sort of like internal psychological stakes and these sort of games of manipulation. And, and, that, and that was very helpful uh, for um, kind of figuring out how we were going to kind of gamify this narrative interaction within Facade. Um, so, uh, you know, what are Facade social games? These, this is really, you know, kind of the, the root organizational framework for behaviors in Facade. And there's, there's three games, and I threw tension up there even though it's not quite a game. There's an affinity game in which the player's uh, forced to take sides in character disagreements. And so um, the, the artist advertising beat we saw up there where they're arguing over the um, decorating and, you know, gr that Grace is trying to hint it that there's something wrong or perverse about the, the decorating trip wants you to, you know, say, no, no, it's great. Don't you love it? And what they're doing is they're sort of behind the scenes, how the system's understanding that, is that they're posing a forced choice situation to the player where you're going to either be agreeing with Trip or agreeing with Grace through the course of this dialogue, and depending on who you agree with, that character's going to like you a little more, the other one's going to like you a little less, and that'll actually then steer future content selection, beat selection, and so forth. There's also a hot button game in which the player can push character hot buttons um, to provoke responses. So these are hot buttons like sex, marriage, therapy, divorce, children. Um, and there's, there's progressions along those uh, kind of hot button topics uh, and you can drill down on those. And in fact, if you really drill all the way on a hot button topic, sort of keep on bringing up, you know, therapy, for example, three, you know, three times in a sort of short period of time, that can actually um, accelerate, like radically accelerate the tension level in the drama and jump you into kind of, you know, tension two right before the uh, big blow up very early in the experience. Um, and so uh, there's the hot button game is sort of one of the mechanisms the player can use for sort of subverting the standard um, kind of tension flow in the game and really like heating things up quickly. Uh, and one of the nice things about that or what we hope to accomplish with that is that after you've played a couple of times and you've heard some of the topics, you know, you know more backstory about the characters, you know some of the topics they can respond to. Now in future playings, if you want to, you can just sort of jump right to the sort of, you know, nastiest, you know, fighting parts of facade by bringing these up and really drilling down on them. Um, then uh, the last third of the experience is structured as what we call the therapy game, which was sort of the, the hardest thing we tried to pull off. I, I think it was in some ways uh, not as successful as the affinity game, though I'm glad we tried it. And this is where the player can actually uh, increase characters' understandings of their problems. And so we have this sort of self-understanding score that we're keeping for each character. Um, and, uh, and 
basically the player is taking the role of a truth teller now, or a lie teller, depending on how you want to play this, where the characters are um, uh, standing across the room from each other, lodging accusations at each other, um, and you can basically, you know, uh, agree or disagree with accusations, or you can bring up new topics or propose, um, I mean, bring up new explanations for the accusations. Like, I think Trip is controlling, right? And in the context of a particular argument they're having, that could be a true statement, and that'll actually slightly increase Trip's self-understanding score at that point. And so you're basically giving the, doing therapy on the characters. Um, and that uh, is one of the strongest determinants of what ending you get actually. Basically, whether neither character achieves self-understanding, a kind of a high enough score in the self-revelation score, both characters do or only one character does, uh, is kind of the major determiner of the final ending. And then there's finally tension, uh, and this is not a game, but dramatic tension is increasing over time and is influenced by the player's actions. So um, what this gave us by understanding this as, as social games is an opportunity to really imagine multiple mixable progressions. You know, one of the bugaboos for interactive storytelling has been if you, if you have this notion of a single narrative thread and a single tightly woven narrative thread, then it feels like, you know, if the player does something not related to that progression, that single thread, they, you either have to ignore what they do or it breaks the thread. Right? And so um, uh, a kind of design strategy we tried to avoid this was to say, um, no, instead of having a single thread that's going on, let's have multiple progressions kind of overlapped and occurring simultaneously. So if the player says or does something that doesn't relate or move forward in an interesting way, sort of the most recent progression that the player's been pushing on, then we can kind of sidestep and maybe that, that utterance or that action helps us progress, wa progress one of these other progressions. Um, and each progression, you know, in a, in a sense for us, progression was kind of the, the essence of the narrative quality of the game. The fact that um, over time, you're not just getting kind of the same flat sea of content, you know, kind of spewed at you, but that there's actually a sense that actions you took earlier um, strongly influence what happens later on, that there's sort of a summing up happening of earlier action leading to later action. And that's, that's what we really mean by, uh, by a progression. So, um, in a sense, what we have is, a, is, a, is three separate progression managers that are all running in parallel in Facade that are all trying to sort of manage their own content pools, and those content pools can, um, can intermix at a pretty fine-grained uh, level. So we have uh, beat sequencing, and uh, dramatic beats are kind of these smallish units of dramatic writing that move, that ratchet a story forward a small amount. So this is, this is a standard term used by uh, playwrights um, when they're uh, analyzing, you know, either writing or analyzing, say, a Hollywood screenplay. And you will actually break it down into these, these little uh, dialogue exchanges where that unit of dialogue exchange ratchets some story, uh, some story value forward, like the love between two characters increases a little bit, or the trust, or the hate, or, or whatever. Um, and those are kind of the atomic units of storiness. And so we have sort of this notion of beats uh, living in a library. They're kind of reified within the architecture. And then there's a manager that's always trying to decide, based on the history of what's happened so far, which one should I sequence next? Uh, but now once you've sequenced a beat, a beat isn't sort of like an atomic cutscene or, you know, pre-rendered, you know, animation or something. A beat is its own little kind of mini-narrative machine. And as a mini-narrative machine, um, it's represented by a canonical sequence of dramatic goals that we call beat goals that you want to happen, that, that sort of uh, uh, um, are the essence of what makes that beat occur. So for uh, the artist advertising beat, the beat goals are basically, um, you know, 
depending on which version of the beat you're looking at, trip or grace, bringing up that there's something odd about the decorating. The other disagreeing with the first character and turning to uh, the player for um, confirmation of their position. The first one upping the ante by saying, no, you need to agree with me, and then a forced choice moment, right? And those are, in a sense, the kind of dramatic goals that um, have to be satisfied to kind of meet the semantics, in a sense, of the artist advertising beat. Um, but of course, you know, that exact sequence may or may not happen, depending on how the player interacts. And so that the sort of narrative machinery, the sequencer for there, um, is a kind of a blob of special case, uh, sort of special purpose planning code that we call handlers, um, that sits there and sort of uh, constantly rewrites the future sequence of the beat as a function of what's happened so far. So in sort of programming languages terminology, this is almost like a, a, a continuation passing style of programming where the future beat goal continuation is rewritten by a custom planner depending on what the player's done in the previous part of the, of the beat. Uh, but in such a way that they, you cause all the beat goals to happen. And so this gives us a lot of sort of uh, morphability and mutability within um, a single beat uh, and that's, uh, that's another, um, uh, another layer for this kind of multiple progression sequencing. And then finally, there's um, global mix-ins, uh, which are these sort of um, uh, topics and responses that don't live in any beat, that can sort of come up at any time. And these are the things like sex, therapy, children, divorce, uh, that implement the hot button game. And those are being independently sequenced and mixed in, depending on when the player gives them, uh, uh, brings them up, in the middle of pursuing a beat. So the beat sequencer sort of knows where, you know, it's trying to make things happen at the beat level. This uh, sequencer is trying to make things happen at the beat goal level. This sequencer is trying to make sort of sensible progressions happen in terms of these satellite topics or these mix-ins, and they're all kind of going on at the same time. And this is, uh, this is what I mean by having these kind of multiple fronts of progression that gives, that gives the system basically more degrees of freedom for responding to player input. Um, the, the, the joint dialogue behaviors are really the atoms of performance. So, you know, this is describing at a high level what the sequencing uh, looks like. But then, you know, obviously, you know, you're hearing um, uh, voice actors speaking dialogue when you, when you play, faca play facade. So we're not like generating language. Um, we're not sort of doing lexical choice and, and all that stuff. There is some finite pool of dialogue in there. And the, this finite pool of dialogue, there's about 9,000 lines of dialogue um, in facade organized into approximately 2,500 of these joint dialogue behaviors. And these are these sort of lowest level performance behaviors, which are in a sense uh, uh, information kind of procedurally expressed in a reactive planning language for what line to perform and how to perform it. And so the how to perform it part is doing things like modulating the emotion system, which is causing long-term behaviors and physical performance over time, uh, so forth. So these, these, uh, each of these joint dialogue behaviors is sort of the smallest granularity little machine that's actually uh, modulating the moment-by-moment -moment behavior to try to carry out the performance of these individual lines. And so all of this stuff can basically be viewed as mechanisms for deciding how to sequence these joint dialogue behaviors. You know, if you, 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 you could imagine if you were implementing this in kind of a chatterbot style, that you would write these 2,500 joint dialogue behaviors, one to five lines of dialogue, put them in a big flat, you know, library, basically, and then depending on what the player just typed, you're basically saying, which one of these should I, how should I respond? Which one of these 2,500 should I sequence next, right? And chatterbots do that in a pretty stateless way. Um, another way of thinking about these progressions is this is basically all of the state and state manipulation mechanisms for helping make that choice among all these joint dialogue behaviors.
Um, these behaviors are used uh, in a variety of ways uh, within the system uh, for beat goals and beat mix-ins, for actually sort of accomplishing um, these units of dramatic meaning that has to have to happen to make something like the artist advertising beat or the mixed drinks beat uh, occur. Uh, global mix-ins um, for these kind of satellite topics. And then autonomous mix-in behaviors, there's not many of these, but these are for sort of longer-term um, performances that include dialogue that layer on top of everything I've said so far. <laughs> so for those of you who have played Facade, um, uh, one example would be, um, you know, Trip has this fetish for this eight ball, and he'll like wand over and pick it up and just shake, and then usually at what we hope are pretty inappropriate times in the dialogue, um, say things like, you know, look at it and say, hmm, ask again, and then sort of like smile strangely at the player. And, and he generally, he does this basically when he's nervous. And we have this, we're sort of modeling this notion of nervousness that Trip has. So he's like walking around, you know, has to walk over somewhere, pick it up, shake it, decide when to insert a line about it. But during all of that, you know, all these other, you know, beat goals and beat mix-ins and stuff are all happening. And so then these autonomous mix-in behaviors have to decide sort of how to insert themselves and how to overlay their physical performance on top of the physical performances um, of the other uh, dialogue behaviors. So, um, you know, beat goals and beat mix-ins are the progressions of specific topics. Um, they're about, you know, 66% of the, of the uh, uh, you know, across all beats, they're about 66% of the total uh, number of joint dialogue behaviors. Uh, so you can think, you know, we have this, you know, in any beat, this canonical beat goal sequence, such as, you know, bring up uh, um, uh, decorating. Um, you know, first person uh, appeals to um, player to agree with them about decorating. Second person appeals to player to agree with them about decorating. Um, uh, they force a choice and wait for a choice, and then not saying anything is perceived as a choice, uh, and we move on, right? That would be like the skeleton of a, of a beat. Um, but how you actually um, play out each of these things, there are sort of many, many ways that you might actually enact bringing up the topic in the first place. You know, posing the first dilemma to the player, posing the second dilemma to the player. Um, and then additionally, uh, there may be uh, beat-specific topics that are kind of, they're related to decorating. They're not part of the global mix-ins. They're not part of the main line of the, uh, uh, of the beat you're trying to accomplish, but they are something that it makes sense to respond to in the context of decorating or make drinks. Those, you know, you have a bunch of uh, performance behaviors for those as well that you need to be able to kind of mix in, reestablish context, replan uh, the rest of the sequence depending on what's been said beforehand, so forth. Oops. All right. Um, Global mix-ins are about 33% of, uh, of the total amount of, you know, of these joint dialogue behaviors content within the system. Um, and these are really um, sequenced in response, again, to these, uh, you know, divorce, sex, the view, the wedding picture, a number of these topics they know about. But those are, they're not just uh, selected out of a flat pool. It's like if, you, if this is the second time you brought up sex, for example, the system knows it. You know, it's remembered that. Um, Grace or Trip is going to be uh, whoever's been sort of responding to that topic, and there are responses for both of them, and th the system has mechanisms for deciding who it's most salient to respond to that topic, given the context. That person's going to have been made more and more nervous by it, to the point that they'll end up blowing up and stomping out of the room um, if you keep on pushing on that. And so that progression and sort of maintaining that state is done by the global mix-in manager. Um, and relative to any beat, this is to, to give some, some kind of sense of kind of relative content pools, 
um, you know, this 33% of the total number of joint dialog behaviors in systems can be sequenced at any time in any beat. And so this is one of the things that keeps us from sort of like, you know, constantly falling off the sequence and breaking, right? Because that's what, you know, if there's not, you know, if there is insufficient variability here to handle um, all kinds of top, you know, topics not related to the beat, then you'd constantly be falling off the beat. They'd have to ignore you, try to reestablish the beat, force it. But by having this large uh, pool to respond to these ancillary topics and then you know, mechanisms to design to allow those to sort of be sequenced in at any moment and then do whatever repair you need to do to the beat to then continue the beat after you've se sequenced it in, we can kind of maintain this, this illusion, this effect of being relatively, re relatively responsive to a wide range of topics at any given time. Um, and then uh, these uh, autonomous mixing behaviors are sort of less, uh, they're a very small uh, total. Um, and in fact, I wish um, we had more of them because I think this is uh, one of the things that really gives um, lifelikeness to the characters is the fact that you know, they're not always pursuing these narrative goals. They're not always kind of you know, fighting and forcing you to move on. They might be just doing kind of odd little, you know, what we call personality moves. These are basically personality move behaviors, right? Like the eight ball. Um, we had a whole bunch that ended up on the cutting room floor because we ran out of time to uh, actually implement them as is you know, typical in game development. Um, but, you know, there were going to be a bunch about bringing up music, you know, and Grace going, oh, let's dance, you know, and, and sort of inappropriately trying to make this, like, dance party happen in the middle of this really tense situation. Um, those are things you can do with the autonomous mixing behaviors that, again, can sort of be running in parallel um, while uh, narrative behaviors are running. Um, so joint dialogue behaviors are organized into beat goals which are organized into beats, and then the, uh, the beat manager, and there's sort of a list of all the beats in the system that, that exist in Facade. Um, uh, and then the beat manager is sequencing those to try to match a global tension arc. You know, one of the nice things about this, this content organization scheme kind of all the way down through the architecture is it makes it very easy to um, uh, incrementally and iteratively add or take away specific units of content. So, for example, at the beat level, it was very late in the... Uh, in the design that we decided, oh, we wanted this like a romantic proposal beat. It's actually very hard to make happen. I don't know if anyone's uh, here has made this happen. This is where um, if you really, uh, during the affinity games, keep on siding with Grace, keep on siding with Grace for a number of beats in a row, you can make Trip sort of desperate enough that he will do this sort of like, you know, Hail Mary move to try to get back in your good graces. And he, and he wants to show off, and, and he does this by trying to show off sort of how romantic and loving he is by reenacting how he proposed to Grace. And like getting down on his knee in the middle of the floor and that, and, you know, Grace is just absolutely mortified. Um, and so, you know, so this was a, a, a beat that we were able to design. You know, it's, it's, it's beat goal progression. It's, you know, custom replanning mechanisms and so forth. Drop it in the pool. Um, didn't change anything else about any other content in the system, and it just worked. It sequenced in when it was supposed to sequence in. It didn't break anything else. Um, and this is, uh, this is something that, um, you know, kind of, you know, finite state machine and story graph approaches to uh, story authoring uh, just don't give you. Trying to add in sort of a new unit of content late in the design usually means completely breaking those things and having to rejigger them. Um, so this turned out to be sort of powerful for um, uh, incremental authoring. Um, you know, we've talked about the, the global mix-ins, um, you know, related to objects, to satellite topics, and then a slew of generic deflects and recoveries. 
because of course people are saying things all the time that are um, that uh, we don't understand, that our natural language understanding system doesn't understand, and even if it did, for which maybe we have no responses, for which we have no content. Um, and what we wanted to avoid is, you know, we, we never say, I don't understand, right? That's like, that would just completely kind of bust the illusion right then. So a bunch of, there, there's a whole like sort of sub-library of these global mix-ins, which are various, you know, kind of fancy ways with kind of progressive backup if, it, if you keep on getting non-understandings multiple times in a row for sort of deflecting, you know, bringing up some topic that you hope the player will then start talking about because you actually know how to respond to it, you know, which in the, you know, parlance of improv acting, that'd be called making an offer. Um, and uh, Trip and Grace make offers like crazy to try to get you sort of back on track when it detects uh, uh, non-understanding happening, and that's all happening in these sort of deflect and recovery uh, beats. Another thing that's, uh, that we're doing that um, is, you know, kind of makes content sequencing challenging is we decided, especially since we're using voice actors, and so these are, you know, recorded, you know, MP3s, that um, we uh, never wanted to repeat a joint dialogue behavior. Because, you know, the human ear is so, you know, like when you hear a line said exactly the same way, like twice, you just hear it immediately. It just pops out that like, oh, it's repeating itself, right? And repetition was another uh, uh, busting move that kind of, you know, busts the illusion we're trying to maintain that we wanted to avoid. So um, part of what all these sequencing mechanisms are doing are keeping track of everything they've used so far and trying their darndest to never repeat itself. Um, and that causes problems here with generic deflects and recoveries where eventually you have to fall back onto sort of speechless deflections, right? <laughs> if you keep on pushing this, um, which can actually be repeated because, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our animation is procedural and it's actually driven by our behavior system. So you can get enough variation in that, that you don't get that, you know, human eye immediately noticing this kind of robotic exact same animation happening. Uh, but that's something, I, I don't know if how many facade players noticed that, but there was a lot of extra work we put on ourselves by basically saying, no repeats ever, you know, to, to um, keep this sense of illusion of life. Um, I won't go into the special beats. Uh, um, just briefly, um, there is uh, a couple of places in the experience where we really want to make clear to the player that we are listening to you. And so these are sort of big, fat sort of complicated beats where um, uh, the characters um, reiterate uh, uh, or uh, describe the history of how they've heard the player over the evening. And so, that, you know, so there is an episodic memory that's being maintained of everything the player said, every, every speech act that was understood by the system, and then it looks for patterns on those. And you know, so these are the beats where you know, uh, Grace might turn to the player when you, when you try to interrupt during the first big blowout where one of them storms out of the room. And like, you know, she might you know, interrupt you when you start trying to type and say, you know, oh, you, you've been agreeing with Trip all night. You know, are you? And those recap beats are... Um, uh, and the therapy game, uh, the, the, the climax beat um, in the therapy game were two places where we tried to do that, uh, that recapitulation of, um, of uh, player history to sort of say, you know, a, as a way to kind of tell the player, look, we really are listening to you and your interaction really is influencing the sort of large-scale progression of the story and we're basically, you know, communicating that to you by directly communicating it to you, right? By like telling you that, <laughs> but hopefully not in, a, in an overly obvious way. So that's what these special beats are. Um, and as you might imagine, I mean, the, the dialogue line sequencing within those beats is highly nonlinear. So it's some of the most sort of, you know, complicated uh, line selection code um, within individual beats in the system.
All right, so if we look now in terms of, you know, kind of the design of these joint dialogue behaviors and, and the, the, the problems, um, you know, all of these different uh, dialogue behaviors from all these different content pools that are all using different um, sequencing mechanisms all have to intermix coherently. Um, and that's, uh, that was a huge struggle even just from a writing perspective. You know, you have to write, uh, you have to write dialogue very, very carefully <laughs> to make to make that um, uh, uh, sort of multi-layered sequencing work. Um, and in fact, we, during the early years when we were starting this project, when I was still at CMU, I was, uh, we were working with a play, uh, playwright in the drama department. And we're trying to see, because you know, CMU has a, a sort of you know, repertory style uh, drama, uh, drama school uh, that you know, sends a lot of people to Hollywood as writers and producers and directors and so forth. So it's like, oh, let's try to tap that. Um, and it was interesting, we were not able to tap <laughs> that, that, that uh, uh, body of knowledge. Um, the, the playwright you were working with, he was great, very, you know, very talented playwright and could just not get sort of uh, comfortable with, really get his head around doing this kind of writing. I mean, the style of writing is just so different from the style of writing you would do if you're writing kind of a linear screenplay or stage play. Um, and, uh, and so we ended up having to do all the writing because in some sense we had to know how all the AI machinery was working and, and sort of, the, and how sequencing was occurring in order to know how to write the stuff so that it would intermix coherently. Um, and, uh, you know, there's also, um, you know, design and, 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 you know, design work basically, um, authoring work that happens in uh, the natural language understanding pipeline uh, where you're, you know, having to do a lot of sort of clever uh, tricks and choices about how to map surface text into discourse acts. Um, and it is doing partial parses. It's not just keyword matches. There's par partial parses, but we're, we're sort of writing uh, kind of these, you know, this custom, this custom parser and this custom parsing language we implemented um, where there's a lot of artistry in kind of guessing the kinds of things players might say and writing, um, and writing parsing rules just so that you're pulling the interesting meanings out of it, right? Um, and then also trying to figure out in what's called the reaction mapping layer that when you have competing discourse acts, how do you sort of um, combine them together and how do you select among them for deciding what reaction uh, to, to, to say. And so, you know, it, it, it's common in facade when you type something and hit the enter key that the natural language understanding pipeline actually spits out four or five um, meanings to what you typed. So, you know, if it was in the middle of the artist advertising beat again and you say, you know, um, oh, I really like the couch. Depending on where in the beat you were, this could be understood as a reference to the couch, disagreeing, um, disagreeing with grace, complimenting grace, um, and, uh, um, and opposing trip, potentially. Or, um, I'm sorry, it would be agreeing with trip, actually. Um, and uh, so you've got these four possible meanings. Which one do you respond to? Which one's sort of most salient? And that's what happens in these reaction mappers. Um, and, uh, and there's also, you know, a lot of sort of artistry and crafting and, and really, I mean, doing what you always have to do with game design, which is kind of get inside the player's head to try to guess, in a sense, what players are going to do and where they might be coming from when they um, perform certain actions. Yeah, I'll skip that. So, um, you know, if we, you know, looking at facade, there's a lot of content um, and it's all computational content. Uh, that has to be authored. 
you know, there's the reactive planning behaviors for the autonomous characters, emotion models, social state, you know, character progression state. Um, there's, uh, you know, drama management work that has to happen. You know, each of the beats uh, has, the, you know, there's a custom sort of annotation language for describing the conditions under which each beat is more or less appropriate. And it's this kind of probabilistic agenda mechanism where every time it needs to make a beat choice, it recomputes a probability distribution over all the unused beats as a function, um, a pretty complicated function, of the um, history, the episodic memory of what's happened so far. And that probability distribution uh, you know, computation is done based on a bunch of annotations that you as a human author have to write uh, um, associated with beats. Um, language understanding and generation, detailed character uh, movement. There's a lot of, you know, procedural controllers and facade. They, you know, the facial expressions are fully procedural, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's authoring work. Um, and so, you know, one of the conclusions, you know, I think I've, I've come to, you know, post-facade is that this is all still too damn hard. <laughs> that was basically um, that, you know, some of the work in facade, I think we, you know, kind of moved. It's possible to build this kind of thing now, and I think some of the, some of the progress, research progress we made moved it maybe from impossible or really hard to conceive of to possible, but it's, it's by no means easy, and, you know, even, you know, people have, uh, have asked us over the years, like, if you were to write another facade-like interactive drama, I mean, different characters, different story, but that kind of interaction, now having the infrastructure you have in facade, um, how long would that take you? And we would estimate, oh, like a year and a half, right? Which, um, you know, there's a couple of responses to that answer. One might be that if you're in sort of the movie business, that doesn't sound too bad, right? It could just be that, like, storytelling is um, hard. <laughs> um, interactive storytelling is probably harder, and a year and a half um, is, not, is not bad. Um, but uh, in the context of doing, you know, in research, in the context of doing research and trying to further work in interactive storytelling, a year and a half is way too long to have a lot of people doing it and a lot of exploration of the design space. Um, so that sort of pushed me into more recently thinking about kind of authoring systems, um, uh, trying to, in a sense, encapsulate into authoring frameworks and authoring languages the technological and design lessons from an experience like Facade in a way that where the, the, the tool now takes care of it for you, right? This can be a way to sort of uh, package up learnings that other people can reuse is to put them into a tool. Um, and I'm sort of um, uh, of two minds about this. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing on this work. A number of students in my, my group are, are pushing in various ways on authoring systems. I'll you know, briefly talk about a few, but um, Andrew and I, you know, when we first started uh, Facade, had a pretty hardcore ideology that um, to do this kind of work requires that you be an artist programmer or a writer programmer. So there's a part of me that says, you know, well, tough, you know, if you want to build, if you want to sort of, you know, further the future of, you know, interactive, uh, of AI-based interactive art, including interactive storytelling, you know, go and get yourself an AI degree and go to art school and know how to do both and now you'll be able to further the future of it. That, and this was sort of a, you know, uh, kind of a hardcore stance that, uh, that I took for a while um, and the kind of vanishingly small number of people in that intersection has uh, continued to discourage me over the years. Also, you know, having taught in a, a digital media program uh, when I was at Georgia Tech, um, I was, my primary appointment was in literature, communication and culture at Tech. Uh, now my primary appointment's in a computer science department so I sort of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, play both sides depending on where I am, but, you know, teaching, you know, being the person who t taught the kind of boot camp 
uh, style introduction to programming for artists and humanists at the graduate level <laughs> in, the, in the LCC program uh, sort of was, uh, uh, you know, taught me over the years that perhaps my initial hardcore stance was that was too, too strong a stance. That like, you know, my, my, you know, idealistic side would say, well, we need to create those people. And so, you know, that's, that's an education problem. And then it's like, oh, it's really hard to create those people, to sort of fix it with pedagogy. And so now I've been kind of backpedaling and saying, well, I still believe that there are, you know, there are things that artist programmers can do that people who aren't both just won't be able to do. I think that's, that's kind of a fact of life. However, some of those competencies hopefully can be packaged up into authoring systems that do allow and enable a larger number of people to, uh, to, to explore the space. You know, basically, I just want a lot of examples, in the case of interactive drama, of interactive dramas, like completed ones. Not interactive drama systems, not languages, not architectures, not, but actual playable interactive dramas. Because, uh, you know, and this is something like the IF community, it, it's fantastic that, you know, there actually, you know, are sort of, you know, design learnings happening in the IF community, and it's been happening for decades, because so many have been written. And so many experiments have been tried. And sort of, you know, like, you know, almost every, you know, kind of possible relationship between, say, player and player character, for example, you know, there's some IF that's like tried to, you know, you know, sort of foil that relationship in some interesting way or complexify that relationship in some interesting way. And that's really powerful. That's actually, you know, I, I would like to have that same thing happening in interactive drama. So if you think about authoring support systems, you know, there's uh, a number of dimensions you could think about the design of such systems. One is the amount of training required. I mean, there are these offering support systems that are intended to enable non-programmers to sort of build facade-like experiences, or is it something that's intended to enable uh, game developers who you know might know a lot of programming, might know a lot of design, after several months of training on the tool, to be able to very quickly do the kind of content authoring and facade. Right? Those are two very different points in the space. Um, you know, which competencies are aided? Is it story skills or computational skills? You know, people, when they tend to think about these uh, um, uh, systems, tend to think in terms of, oh, storytellers who don't know how to program. That's how we, who we want to help. But how about programmers who don't know how to tell stories, right? <laughs> I mean, that's another, you, you could try to uh, 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 leverage that competency. It's like, no, it's actually intended for hardcore programmers, but they don't know anything about storytelling. The tool should help with that. Um, you know, how big is the interaction space per unit of authoring work? Um, so this is kind of a notion of authoring leverage that in some of the recent uh, drama management work we've been doing with optimization-based drama management, we've actually been trying to get sort of, you know, quantitative handles on, you know, if you're doing all this fancy pants AI stuff, um, is it really giving you leverage over scripting, right? Because it's a lot of work to do this AI stuff, and maybe if you just, like, wrote a whole bunch of scripts and triggers, <laughs> then um, that would actually be less work. And we've been doing some kind of interesting, uh, uh, what I find interesting work in um, using machine learning techniques to extract out the script and trigger equivalent system for a drama management policy. Um, and the encouraging, at least encouraging for those of us in the AI storytelling uh, world uh, result, is that the script and trigger um, the script and trigger logic that you can sort of recover from a drama management policy is like um, extremely complex and hairy and counterintuitive, even for small numbers of kind of plot points and drama management moves. And so what that actually says is that doing that sort of fancy pants AI stuff is actually giving you authoring leverage. And, 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 you, and you can actually, you know, it's almost sort of like, uh, in a way, it's uh, almost like the Kolmogorov complexity or something for those of you who might 
be interested in computational complexity, the Kolmogorov complexity of a drama manager, but then we're picking as our proxy for real Kolmogorov complexity um, the script and trigger complexity. And then we can, you know, and then we can actually sort of define, you know, a, a measure of script and trigger complexity. So that's uh, um, that that's you know sort of an issue for these authoring systems is, is trying to figure out, you know, what what is that sort of multiplier that you're giving um, in the interaction space per unit of co um, content authoring effort. So you know, some systems that are out there, you know, Storytelling Alice and Storytron are you know two that people have probably heard of, um, Thespian. Um, and they really hit at different points in that space. So Storytelling Alice is really kind of a pedagogical project that's aimed at increasing the computational competency of the, the, the author by using storytelling as a, um, as a kind of an attractor, as a, uh, as a uh, desirable goal for the learner, right? So the learner wants to tell stories, has stories they want to tell, they don't know how to program, and Storytelling Alice is saying, okay, we're going to, you know, teach you how to program by using this desire you have to tell stories and giving you a programming environment that sort of, um, you know, scaffolds you up the computational complexity uh, curve as you write your story. You know, that would be one point in that space. You know, Storytron is really aimed at people with significant storytelling competency but limited computational competency. Um, and then we could say, you know, if anyone, I don't know how many people here have played with, uh, I've played with Erasmatron before it was Storytron, but, you know, my experience with that is that uh, tuning the inclination equations in Erasmatron or Storytron actually requires um, a lot of computational thinking. <laughs> you do have to, you know, that's, uh, but, but the goal is, um, uh, you know, Chris's goal is to, uh, to help, you know, to, to bring people who have um, professional storytelling capability and, um, and uh, but don't know how to program and allow them to be able to build interactive stories. Um, you know, the first system we kind of built in the space of, of authoring systems was something called Wide Ruled. I'm not going to go into it in detail, but it's based on um, a universe model of story generation. Uh, so one of the, the classic kind of mid-80s um, story generators, AI story generators by Leibowitz. Um, so it's, you know, a Yale School story generator coming out of that Schenkian tradition. Um, is, uh, was a, was a um, soap opera, episodic soap opera generator called Universe. Um, and, uh, you know, the motivation for trying to sort of invent a GUI system for authoring universe-style generative story spaces came out of um, student work, actually, during my time teaching at Georgia Tech in the interactive storytelling course there. So most of my students' uh, intera interactive storytelling there were not computationalists. They were coming from the perspective of being sort of artists and humanists with, you know, a decent amount of computational competency, especially if they passed my boot camp course, but, uh, but not, you know, that, that wasn't their background. Um, and, you know, I taught a number of different sort of story generation and interactive story AI frameworks in that course, including Universe, and sort of time and again, students would loop back around to Universe as the model they wanted to use for some experimental story system that they had to build as a project at the end. And so, um, and people basically kept on re-implementing Universe in, you know, in Python or Java or C and kind of re-implementing, you know, kind of broken or partially working versions of universe as the back end for a variety of interactive storytelling experiences that were both kind of master's theses as well as um, class projects. And that, that seemed to be a model of 
for thinking about story gener generative story spaces that really like worked for people that they could grasp very quickly. So then uh, that you know, of course led me to think with you know I put my computer scientist hat on. It's like well when people are doing you know the same thing over and over, then you should package it up <laughs> in a tool and uh, um, so that people don't have to keep on doing that same thing over and over, and they can actually just focus on you know the the story they want to tell. And the and how they want to visually and, and textually express the story, and not worry about this generation uh, architecture. Um, and so that was uh, kind of the impetus for wide rule. That's gone through a number of of uh, 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 iterations. I mean, I use it in my interactive storytelling classes as sort of you know so that students can actually have a concrete assignment, concrete experience with building generative story spaces. Because generative story spaces are one of those you know fancy sounding concepts that you know is, is sort of loosey-goosey and really hard to get your head around what the heck it could possibly mean and this is like a really concrete way to get your head around what it could possibly mean. Um, it's trying to be sort of friendly for non-programmers. Um, this is where it basically looks like programming. So this is uh, you know down deep in the uh, plot fragment editor. Um, you're authoring you know preconditions, you're authoring sort of action sequences um, and sort of authoring this stuff and making it work, um, you're, is programming, basically. And so this is where um, you know, we're semi-successful in, I think, scaffolding people up. But you, you, don't, you don't get to avoid learning computational concepts. You still do have to learn some computational concepts. But hopefully, one of the things we've done is um, removed syntax. Um, so at least you're not struggling with syntax and esoteric messages about semicolons and stuff while you're, uh, while you're also trying to get your head around um, the computational notion of a story space. Uh, where we're going with that project um, is uh, this is sort of a, a concept shot for this uh, for Story Canvas, which is the successor system. Um, where uh, one of the realizations um, that I've had that I will see if it's uh, experimentally see if it's a, a, a false realization or a true realization um, is that uh, no amount of kind of fancy interface work and GUI uh, you know GUI uh, wizardry is going to make interactive storytelling kind of easy to think about because the, the branchiness of interactive storytelling, even if you're not explicitly authoring branch, br branches, the branchiness is inherently hard. It's inherently complex. Um, if you're making a facade-like experience, there's just there's sort of lots of conditionality kind of all the way down. And thinking about that kind of conditionality is ir um, irreducible. I think it's just there's an irreducible complexity. And so um, the, the direction we're pushing now um, is to say, well, what if we put a mixed initiative story generator in the box so that you, as a human author, <coughs> author um, linear story sequences. And you drag characters together, and you sort of drop traits on them, and you drop sort of social situations on the background. And the system starts ripping on it and says, well, maybe this happens instead. And maybe if the player does this, this would happen. And then the author could say, no, no, I don't like this one, but more of this one, and pursue this thread. And you started getting sort of a, you know, a, a, a branching um, uh, sort of you know comic space um, that's a combination of you and the system kind of having a, 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 a dialogue about potential branches in the space and then when you're sort of happy with it at this level you hit the compile button and a bunch of sort of you know interactive drama code spews out the end and there's your facade like experience that would be the sort of the dream um, and this is uh, and we're sort of you know pushing on this now by we're currently kind of morphing this system into this system and figuring out how to represent everything we represent here in sort of you know ugly gooey land um, as uh, uh, direct manipulations on storyboards. Um, 
And I think, uh, you know, I've already raised a number of questions about um, this issue of authoring. Uh, you know, what should we be required of interactive story authors? You know, there's this hardcore artist programmer um, stance, you know, interdisciplinary teams. Um, should, you know, individuals with strong competency in only one area be required? You have to be a good storyteller or a good programmer. Uh, should, we should, should we be trying to build uh, tools that help people that don't have competency in either of those areas? Uh, I, I don't really know. All, all that I'm trying to struggle with is I just want more people building interactive stories, <laughs> based interactive stories. And uh, the current tools don't seem to be encouraging a lot of people to do it, so um, uh, maybe, maybe authoring tools will. Um, yeah, I think I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Um, a general sort of parting thought, um, the, the motivating uh, uh, ideology in my research group is really kind of reconceiving expressive AI as a medium. And so that's where um, even when uh, we're building tools like the kinds of tools and AI frameworks we built for Facade that aren't explicitly aimed at, say, novice authors, kind of authorability and authoring and the idea of an author is essential in all the work. You know, I'm, I'm not interested in kind of brain in a vat models of AI where the system just sits there and is kind of like smart on its own. I'm interested in AI architectures that allow human authors to express kind of artistic intention through the system. And so, you know, kind of like what are the authoring hooks? What are the multiple layers of abstractions? What kinds of architectural frameworks, languages, um, algorithms do you need to, uh, to, to sort of allow inscription by a human author, artistic expression, but also kind of um, the combinatoric generativity that computation gives you. And so, um, you know, whether it's uh, interactive drama work or, you know, um, visual, you know, interactive visual art generation or robotic art, um, every system is kind of informed by this view of kind of AI as a medium and that drives all the architectural research. Right, I think that's it. Questions? Could you just tell? Is this on? Okay. okay. Oh, I see. Got it. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about how you went about debugging what was going on in Facade? Because that <laughs> seems like one of the hardest problems of all, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of um, replay. We had harnesses that would allow us to like jump into an individual beat and sort of play a beat over and over. Um, there was a, uh, a beat sequencing debugger that allowed us to kind of play with potential beat sequences it completely in this abstract space with no, with no character action and detailed dialogue going on. Um, there is a visual debugger for Able for the, uh, um, for the reactive planner that actually lets you, like, you know, put breakpoints and look at the active behavior tree um, and sort of manipulate the behavior tree and so forth. But uh, yeah, there weren't, um, a lot of it was just, um, you know, playing like, you know, if, we, if, you, if you were in development of a specific beat and the logic for a specific beat, just playing it over and over and over again. Um, and so uh, there was no um, kind of automated support for that. Uh, and I agree. I mean, this, and I know this is one of the uh, one of the things that really gives uh, commercial developers the willies about uh, using techniques like this is this um, uh, you know difficulty with reproducing bugs. 
and uh, you know, and I was I was talking with uh, Nick's class earlier today, and people were asking questions about various you know oddities that had happened to them in specific you know scripts, run-throughs they'd have, and like why did it respond this way or that way? And I said, you know, without um, the the debug trace on. Uh, I really don't have a hope of actually, you know, I can take some wild guesses as to why they said one thing or another, but, you know, it's once you have this many layers operating, I don't really know in any detail uh, why the system's responding the way it is in a particular situation. I can take guesses. And, and you know, we did this, you know, you could turn on a, an extremely verbose and copious uh, debug trace that would also um, spit out uh, when you were running it. And, you know, you can sort of grep around in that. Um, but, yeah, there, there were no magic bullets. Um, I guess the, the magic microphone must be disseminated. Yeah, uh, I think this is terrific work, and obviously there's a lot of dimensions here to it. So you have a, um, uh, you know, the, the um, model of the joint dialogue behaviors, and, you know, there's various kind of components of things that you model. And one thing I was uh, wondering is, is there any place where you model kind of the situations in which the characters find themselves in, for example? A party, and you know, in Shanks uh, stuff, and in some of our stuff, we say, okay, what do people do at a party? You know, they listen to music, they dance. You know, and and you you kind of uh, is there an explicit model that's apart from dialogue, uh, the authoring the dialogue, where you talk about all the things that might happen at a party? Because you talked about like mm -hmm. getting inside the head of your uh, right. player, right. and the player, you know, the player finds himself in the situation. Hey, I'm at a party. What are things I do at a party? And that might be good for um, uh, reminding the authors, at the very least, reminding the authors of the cases they need to right. cover. And then, of course, in the best case, you might want to give them some help from covering those cases. So right. if the uh, guest says, hi, I brought a bottle of wine, you know, then you know that one thing at the party, the guests bring things and, you know, don't stroll over to the bar because you want to open the wine that the guest brought or something. Yeah, so no facade doesn't have um, explicit common sense models of situations like parties. And you know, as as I know, you know, um, we're using ConceptNet uh, in the lab for some work on game generation, kind of unrelated to interactive drama. Um, but yeah, that kind of modeling is one of the directions we're pushing in enabling this, because that's you know, when I, when I say that the system kind of in this mixed initiative way starts suggesting alternatives, or that's exactly what we want it to be doing is to basically help you as the author delinearize your narrative at multiple levels of abstraction by suggesting sensible things. And so, um, and one of the tricks, and again, this is just like, you know, uh, uh, um, empirical, like whether this will work or not, but, you know, one of the empirical hypotheses to test is whether we can avoid the kind of black hole of AI completeness, of needing to know, like, everything about the world by, um, uh, by focusing on social games, actually, as the organizing principle. So, you know, one of the things, instead of knowing um, all about, you know, sort of, you know, parties and restaurants and all of these, like, really sort of concrete situations, which are sort of innumerable in the world, um, what if it knows about what an affinity game is, like, abstractly, and has an abstract model of affinity games and therapy games and, you know, now I've got you, you son of a bitch games, you know, if we're borrowing that one from Eric Byrne and that. And so, and I think that in terms of dramatic interaction, there might be a smallish number of those that actually give you a lot of coverage for dramatic interaction. So that's kind of the, but, but, it, but it is, it, it still is requiring background knowledge. So it is going the background knowledge route, but it's kind of like um, going the route of background social knowledge um, rather than a lot of background uh, 
concrete background world knowledge. Though I think, you know, I think ultimately we'll need some of that to ground the social game, right, when it makes, when it makes suggestions. But uh, we're doing some experiments now uh, using HTN planning for uh, automatic beat generation. Uh, based on sort of like declarative formal models of backstory and so on, where we're trying to see how far we can get with putting together sensible beats, knowing very little about the content of the beat, and only knowing about the sort of social structure of like who likes whom, who doesn't like whom, who's embarrassed by some event in the past, so forth, uh, and using that mo uh, knowledge to leverage um, an explicit model of different social games. Uh, so that's... Uh, um, but yeah, that, that's, I, I, that explicit modeling is definitely where we're going. Hi. Um, you know, I know that in, in uh, animation studios, uh, they have that same problem in a way where they, that you've described where they have, to they have to decide whether they want to teach programmers to think like artists or artists to think like programmers. Mm -hmm. And I can understand from what you were describing that the branchiness aspect of it is one thing that probably um, keeps writers from thinking like programmers. Right. What do you think it is that most controls the, the problem going the other way? What, what's the main issue for programmers thinking like writers? Like, um, um, writers? Yeah, that's an interesting question because there definitely are uh, issues. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it might be a. You know, uh, I'm going to have to talk obliquely around that. I don't think I have like a clean answer, but uh, an indicator is that you know, in, in my classes, like the interactive storytelling class I, I teach now at Santa Cruz, is primarily to computer scientists, right? And there's uh, um, and also the uh, um, the the senior game design studio that I teach is it's primarily you know computer scientists and programmers, and I do a lot of uh, crit style feedback, right? So we, we show, we do crits, we do, and for many people, they're, that's, they're pretty uncomfortable with that. And, that and, and part of it is, I think, the training, uh, part of a computer science uh, training or programming training is to think in terms of well-posed problems that you then come up with you know, clever solutions to well-posed problems. But here, you're simultaneously exploring, you're trying to figure out what the problem is while you implement it. Right, I mean that's 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 a difference. If you're doing if you're doing writing through programming, it's not like you have some you know well-posed problem. I need to you know topologically sort this partial order. What should I do? Right, it's not it's not a problem of that form. Um, it's really more your you know that, uh, there was like uh, was it Riddle and Weber who talked about wicked problems. But anyways, there's this notion of wicked problems uh, from the um, uh, uh, public, um, like urban planning and public planning uh, community in, from in the 70s, which were problems where basically you're trying to simultaneously explore uh, the problem space and the solution space. You're trying to figure out what the problem is while you develop solutions for it, and neither stable. And that's, and that's what's sort of called a wicked problem. And I think um, uh, you know, game design or any sort of computational expressive work, whether it's, it's games or not, is wicked in that sense. That you don't have, you have neither a stable uh, problem uh, space nor a stable, uh, uh, and, and you don't have a stable solution target. You don't have a, you don't have criteria for what it would mean to be successful, um, and uh, and I think that is really that's something that people uh, in, with arts backgrounds, and I'll say arts broadly, whether it's you know theater arts or uh, animation or visual art, um, have their training has prepared them to sort of expect that that is the case. I mean that that you know well that's normal. 
That's like what it means to do practice, right? Um, and that's not a training uh, that most computer scientists have had. So I think. Um, it sounds like you're you're describing ambiguity as. as yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, a kind of ambiguity. Um, it's I mean ambiguity and what it means to have a solution and what the problem even is, because um, you're. I mean, if someone else actually has an answer to that question, um, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Michael, you keep talking about the program reacting, you know, appropriately to the problems, and it's, it's, it's all about the program. But what about the interactor? What about the player? How do you shape the experience? You were talking about making an offer, borrowing this term mm -hmm. from improv theater. How right. do you program the player? How do you script their interactor? <laughs> of yes, course, okay. um, you know. How do you do that? Because, because it's, it, it goes both ways. You also have to tell the mm -hmm. the player, okay, why don't you do this? So mm -hmm. how do you manipulate the player without making it too obvious? Right. Um, so I don't know of kind of a universal answer to how you script the interactor, but you, you know, in the case of facade, mm -hmm. um, we're constantly throwing out these conversational offers so that, you know, particularly in the case of kind of, you know, misunderstood input, for instance, or non-understood input, doesn't know if it's misunderstood, but it, it knows when it just plain old hasn't understand, understood, um, that it always responds by kind of making offers. And by, you know, and, and we actually did a... Uh, qualitative study, you know, kind of a, a, a detailed qualitative step studies of players with retrospective interviews going back over their traces and sort of like interviewing them about what was going on in their heads at the time that certain obvious conversational breakdowns happened and then, you know, and then looking at um, temporal patterns for what players would do after those breakdowns. And we did, you know, just sort of empirically see this kind of self-healing property to breakdowns where um, players would, you know, there would, there would be some line they were pursuing, there would be a breakdown, you know, there would be this perception of like, oh, the conversation just went off a cliff somehow, but then the next thing the player would do is sort of opportunistically form new interaction goals based on what they just learned and pursue those, and then those would be successful. And so you'd have, which is, which is kind of a, a, an, an interesting result compared to many kind of task-based dialogue systems, where if you've got the, you know, the automated travel agent system or whatever for task-based systems, and it kind of falls off a cliff, you know, oftentimes like you're, 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 com you know, you're, you're just done, right? <laughs> like it's, <laughs> it can be really hard to sort of repair that. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, it's one of the reasons why we chose to have you know two characters instead of one character is because then they could play off each other um, when there are breakdowns to try to keep things going, uh, as opposed to you know a one-on-one -on -one situation. It's hard to do that. Um, uh, so there, so there's, so, th so that was, you know, yeah. So there's, so it's a cycle, right? It's not just sort of once you do it, or um, uh, so that. I mean, that was a strategy we used in facade, but I think you know in any interactive experience design. Part of what you're trying to communicate to to the interactor is the the affordances of the of the system, the affordances of the space. You know what what are the possibilities, including supporting edge finding behavior. You know, so we knew people would you know try to break in and say crazy things to the characters and all that. And rather than viewing that as a, a bad thing that we want to be viewed as like, oh well, that's you know, I mean that's what people do when they when they. Uh, interact is particularly with game-like experiences is edge finding is how you then determine what the affordances are so that you know it, it's kind of like a way of psyching out the implicit rule system of the of the game so that you can then play it um, and so we designed for explicitly supporting that kind of meta play uh, in, in facade as well so that, that's another way um, to do it I wish we'd been able to support more meta play actually than we did but um, hi I'm 
a writer who'd like to argue that there is some um, worth in collaborating with real writers, yes. but but there is but there is some work involved. Um, one of the things that I've come up against initially um, with trying to collaborate mm -hmm. with interactive fiction programmers is that the world's not made of um, j only of environments, objects, and functions. Um, but when you're writing, you're creating um, local logics and usually using minimal uh, representations to indicate, like, you could describe this room a hundred different ways and it would be a different room every time. And so, you know, the, uh, usually I find that a programmer wants to go out and say, okay, what are, what are the cognitive models for believable behavior and what are the animal models for believable behavior? But when a writer writes, they don't know any of those things, and yet they'll make a world that's more believable. Mm. Um, in my experience, which is still mm. somewhat limited, but it seems as though as much effort needs to be invested in the collaboration, almost perhaps more than the object that you're making, and that's still something that um, people seem to get tired very quickly before they've even figured out a framework for working. Mm -hmm. So. No, I think I think interdisciplinary collaboration is great. I mean, I'm not I'm not opposed to it, um, but I completely agree with you that it is um, strictly harder in in the sense that um, you know, like like if you if you take two situations, one of kind of a writer programmer who understands all these logics and is also a writer, and so they have this sort of interdisciplinary collaboration like in their brain versus having to do it sort of across brains. The across brain case is just kind of strictly harder and takes a lot more work. And so pr presumably, you know, progress is going to be slower. There's going to be more misunderstandings there. And so this, this is where I, you know, would say that they're, you know, that the role of the artist programmer, writer programmer, is that they can really quickly kind of explore designs on both sides of the fence simultaneously um, <laughs> instead of having, you know, sort of lengthy meetings all the time about it with all the attendant misunderstandings and miscommunications of a meeting. Um, Yeah, so I, I was really interested in this idea, are you actually discovering anything about relational dynamics and the games people play through the process of trying to model it and to pick up on your point about the wi wicked problems. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I couldn't help thinking that if you're starting with a model which is derived from a, a pop psychology book and then through the process of trying to... Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not the only place we've uh, right. uh, pulled out work on that social. Like right now, we're trying to, uh, you know, like our notion of social game was pretty like fast and loose in facade because right. they weren't actually explicit in the system. They were implicit in the behaviors of the characters. Now that we're trying to explicitly argument, uh, uh, explicitly model it, going to uh, to Henry's point, um, mm. we're actually trying to be come up with a more precise definition of what we mean by social game, and we're turning a lot to Goffman and sort of um, right. and dramaturgical analysis, right. basically. Um, dramaturgical mm. and sociological analysis as a way to try to define, sure. to put more meat on the bones of what sure. we mean by social game. Sure. But, um. but in, in that sense, then you are then 
revising the, the initial theories that are informing the design and rejecting some and, and moving towards others that you feel are more valid because they enable you to create more convincing models. And in that sense, you are progressing towards, in a sort of Popperian sense, you're prog progressing ever-refined models that perhaps are mm. saying something about the relational dynamics of the way people interact in the real world. Uh, you're Is basically you saying, are we, are we making progress in sociology by doing this kind of work? Yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah. hmm, I haven't been making that claim. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, I, no, I think that would be, that, that would be I, it would be interesting to actually collaborate, in that case, <laughs> with a sociologist about that. I'm, uh, I'm hesitant to make that claim because I mean, cause we do have specific expressive goals. So um, it's not... The goal is not um, uh, sort of you know modeling kind of error-free modeling of empirical social behavior in the world, um, m much of which is like boring from a sort of like storytelling and dramatic uh, perspective, <laughs> but really kind of modeling um, social behavior that has a lot of like storytelling affordance, a lot of dramatic juice, um, and so that does you know so so one of the things we've been trying to like a distinction we've been trying to make which isn't in the dramaturgical. Uh, um, uh, literature is this distinction between sort of you know what we're calling functional social games, and um, and uh, so you know and social social state change social games. I mean we don't have good names for this, but you know you'll see when you look at like you know uh, 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 symbolic interactionist work, you know more generally, not not just Goffman, that there'll be there's sort of a very fluid movement between talking about like the social game of um, you know uh, checking out at a store. Right, and there's a lot of very functional um, interaction that's happening in there, which is not a social game in like this sense, right? And that's uh, you know, though often um, in the context of engaging in that functional interaction, people will use opportunities to then enact their personalities, you know, to, to enact their presentation of self. And so, so it's kind of like these functional social games become these uh, these platforms that offer opportunities. Um, for performing presentations of self. So one of the things that's, be that's become really clear as we've tried to, to model this is that there's actually a pretty convoluted hierarchical nature to these games. It's not just like there's one happening, another happening, another happening. You can have these sort of nested layers and a functional social game provides a, a platform for a, uh, for a, uh, a, a presentation uh, a presentation enactment, um, and uh, but the presentation enactment might also be simultaneously performing part of a social state change social game, right? And that, and so one of the ways we've been trying to identify the social state change social games um, has been to look at um, uh, to look at uh, enacted dramas uh, and to do kind of a dramaturgical analysis of enacted drama. Right, as opposed to you know, which is very different from kind of the naturalistic bent of, of of dramaturgical analysis. So we've been looking at like Sex in the City, and then saying like, what if we do a dramaturgical style analysis of what's going on, sort of moment by moment in Sex in the City, and you know, and why look at Sex in the City versus well, because a lot of these social state change games and these very uh, uh, weighted. Um, uh, uh, presentation games, presentation of self games, like they're happening all the time. In a sense, it's kind of like the definition of drama is you've taken the volume knob and turned it way up. So you, so you can see lots of instances in a very compact space, right? And then do, but then, but then it would be kind of, you know, interesting but dangerous to think about what that tells you moving it back into 
real-world interaction, since drama is sort of, you know, by definition, an abstracted, uh, an abstracted, um, you know, you know, purposely, um, you know, yeah, purposely abstracted artistic abstraction of everyday interaction. So, but that's one of the ways we've been trying to. Yeah, so, yeah, the the sociological literature in, in symbolic interactionism doesn't, it tends to sort of stop at about the 5,000 foot view. And, you know, since we're trying to put it in a machine, we need to go to the sort of like, you know, zero foot view. <laughs> and so to get there, we've been having to make a bunch of distinctions that we're sort of not finding in the literature. I was hoping just to find a bunch and like, oh, you figured it out for us, great. You know, we'll implement it. Um, and we're, we're not finding that, unfortunately. Um, uh, but anyways, I don't know if that's, I'm just kind of talking around your question, but... Um, Um, well, I mean, people have, there, there's actually, uh, Mark Cavazza has built, uh, uh, you know, an HTN planning system that models character behavior in friends. So that's, uh, um, I mean, whether you call it a mathematical, I mean, it's a computational model. Um, and, you know, but then you can ask, um, I mean, and the, I, we don't want to get into the relationship between math and computation. Uh, I'd say computation is strictly more general, but uh, <laughs> some mathematician is going to come and beat me up. We are um, math. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nick and I were talking about that with the uh, the general eds. I guess there's this discussion about redoing the general eds at MIT, which is interestingly enough, we're having the same discussion at uh, uh, about I redoing the distribution requirements at, at Santa Cruz. But you know, there's like this you know calculus requirement everybody must take, but not a programming requirement. And I'm like, well, if you're if you're just if the if the intellectual content of that is modeling and modeling the world, like computation is by far a much more general formal modeling framework than calculus. Like there's a very, you know, there's a sort of small subset of systems in the world that ordinary differential equations are like, uh, are, are amenable to modeling. Well, you know, computation covers a lot more, including all the ones that ODEs model. So that should be the requirement. But, uh, but anyways, um, so yeah, so whether there, there is, there has explicitly been work on friends. Um, So my question is sort of like a, a mix of these last two questions. And you talked a little bit about um, trying to do collaboration with within the arts. Mm -hmm. um, did you find any way to do collaboration within the AI world? Or were you able to incorporate other AI work that had been done previously? Um, so I mean, there's lots of idea, you know, snippets of ideas and concepts from, you know, just like any research, you know, there's, I read lots of papers, I go to lots of conferences, and then you, you get lots of ideas and you assemble together and munge them in, in different ways. I mean, that's, you know, you know, there are probably, you know, a dozen or, you know, a dozen and a half papers that came out of Facade that have been published at AI conferences as, you know, sort of novel contributions in AI. Um, and that's generally true of each of my, my systems, you know, whether it's a, you know, a gallery installation or whatever, one of the, um, uh, uh, rubrics I set for myself is that everything I make should simultaneously function as like as art that you know that that actually works in an art context whether it's a gallery or an experimental game or something and results in a number of AI research contributions like publishable AI research contributions so it's sort, sort of like trying to do both at the same time um, so it's not that I'm sort of applying like off-the-shelf AI techniques to things and in fact I I kind of disbelieved in that application model 
that sort of, you know, we can just sort of take what, you know, standard solutions that AIs come up with and sort of apply them to art. Um, I actually think if you take uh, uh, expression, you know, um, uh, as a first-class research question, and these questions of like this, atten you know, the tensions between um, system autonomy and authorial intentionality, um, uh, you know, questions about um, uh, the relationship between authoring affordances and interpretive affordances for audiences and how that's um, sort of articulated by the, the architecture of the system. There's a lot of questions that come up that are actually first-class research questions of, of their own, AI research questions, um, but they're not AI questions that sort of, you know, uh, AI, you know, business as usual has been asking. And so it's you're actually asking novel AI research questions and then hopefully finding answers to them that like would not have been posed or answered without sort of taking um, expression as, as, as uh, like a first class um, uh, area of exploration. And so that's kind of the, you know, that's the expressive intelligence um, uh, approach to doing AI research slash art practice. Um, I don't, did, did that answer or? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so I actually wanted to ask a, a content question. So, so I guess one of the things with with facade is that it it takes a sort of fairly dim view of 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 life in in general, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, and, and so I was wondering, like, was that by design? And so, I guess, like, by 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 extension, it seems like most of the like facade and, and a lot of the systems you talk about are, are sort of very clearly identifiable genres, right? So, so. So I was wondering, like, th this sort of genre thing is part of, like, setting up the user's expectations about what they're supposed to do and, like, what, what, uh, what's, like, what the affordances are of, of the situation, right? Yeah, so, so but, but could you tell a bit, like, so is it easiest to create these kind of systems for, for, for these sort of, like, hot-button uh, situations, like relationships that, that break up and so on? Or, or, is, there, or is it, like, a, a by chance that this was, like, what you stumbled upon? Um. So we, the reason we ch uh, chose, there's a number of reasons why we chose that the content area we did. One was just personal interest that, you know, we, we like movies like He's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and, and Sex, Lies, and Videotape and Husbands and Wives and so forth. And um, so, uh, so that, that's one. I mean, there are, there are other kinds of uh, plays and movies I like as well. But I, I, I do like these, like, sort of really intense, you know, uh, you know conversation-based, you know, uh, Social interactions, uh, and and Andrew very much does as well. Um, so that's so that's like a, you know, a personal choice. Um, another was that uh, um, we were, and I guess apologies to people in Nick's class who might be here because uh, you heard this earlier today that we were uh, in the early days of the project. We were very interested in trying to invert um, a lot of design assumptions of contemporary game design. And so there, you know, and then in fact there were you know early papers we wrote where we were sort of adamant like facade is not a game. You know, we're doing this other, and then later on, it's like, yeah, it's a game. You know, it, it became, <laughs> I don't know, it became less uh, important to me to try to do this, like, it is a game, it isn't a game. And, but in the early days, there was kind of this strong, it's not a game, it's something else, it's a new new medium. Um, and then part of that was, like, th these inversions, like, you know, games are about exploring these giant spaces, so we want it to be a really, sim like, a small apartment. There's nowhere to go. Um, you know, games are about these, uh, you know, primarily physical interaction with occasional, uh, with occasional interactions with sort of, you know, human-shaped vending machines, basically, right, as the NPCs. <laughs> it's a little harsh, but uh, that's, uh, so yeah, um, we'll take away all physical interaction, and it's only interaction with the NPCs. Um, you know, games are about, uh, um, you know, primarily fantastical, uh, whether you call, I don't know if that's a genre or 
a content selection thing, but science fiction, fantasy, fantastical elements. So we'll try to pick something really mundane, right? Something that ev you know that everybody's familiar with. We've all had relationships end. We've all had friends who have you know gotten divorced. We've all seen like nasty things we wish we'd never seen. That's saying okay, well we all know about that. That's a good topic for a game, right? <laughs> Instead of orcs and trolls and and uh, you know. Uh, and space, you know, fighting in space and so forth. So, so part of triangulating on that was just like if we kind of turn the knob, you know, 180 in reverse on a bunch of these design assumptions, that's the kind of thing you sort of end up on. Um, <laughs> uh, and, then, and then there was also a sense that because, you're right, it's a kitchen sink drama. I mean, this is total like, you know, kitchen sink drama, which is like a really well understood form. Um, and so we can actually tell when we fail. So there was also this goal. It's another reason why we chose an Aristotelian story arc, as opposed to if we'd done some, you know, um, you know, completely kind of individual, kind of you know, sui generis experimental form or whatever. We could have sort of built anything, and whatever you know, crazy thing came out, um, declared success and gone home, right? Oh yes, the experiment was successful. It met the you know unarticulated goals of my experiment, right? And that's what, um, and uh, you know, and I and I feel like there's been a lot of that kind of work in um, interactive narrative of kind of the, the, the radically experimental form which then makes it really hard to sort of gauge success and progress. And so it's like traditional Aristotelian drama, kitchen sink, like if it, you know, if it completely screws up, it'll be like painfully obvious because, uh, because it's the super well understood form with all these expectations and so forth. So that was another um, motivator. I think we're pretty close to uh, the time that we have to cut things off. We, I guess, could have time for one more question. All right. Or if, if it completely stumps Michael, then we would have time for two. But uh, sorry, <laughs> your, I like your gentle rebuke. <laughs> so I, I was just going to say, like, as a as someone who cares about game design, like I I absolutely love what Facade did in terms of changing the. You know, making a banal setting, making a very physically limited setting instead of you know massive environment, um, forcing the player to interact with the characters and and do so uh, through language. And the the thing I was going to ask about was actually that language interface. Um, if I, I think if I was going to offer a criticism of facade, it's that l the language was was far too unconstrained an interface for me. So that a lot of times I would say something, and I thought I was being clever or I thought I was being mean. And I think what I was getting, like, 50% of the time were those deflections, you know? <laughs> and, I and I really couldn't tell whether it was because they didn't understand what I said or because they were reacting in a subtle way to mm -hmm. having understood what I said, reacting in a subtle way. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, given that your, your beat system and everything and your planner and so on has these expectations about what a player might choose to do at particular times, as a game designer, what would you feel about saying say, doing away with the language interface and, and presenting more discrete choices to the player so that while it's less charming probably than, than using written language, at least it's much more clear to me as a player what I'm doing and how I'm in impacting the, the characters. Like, would that, would that just, like, take all the charm out of facade, or is there something um, interesting to be done there? So I do really like the, the open-ended language interface um, for a number of reasons that, you know, for, for time, I'll, uh, I'll, we can talk about it offline. But I will say... Uh, right now that um, we are actually experimenting with some experimental interfaces to facade that try to do uh, menu-based 
dialogue selection, I mean, not dialogue selection, like selecting exact lines, but things like, you know, speech act selection based on expectations. And, and part of that is sort of an experiment to see how does that change the feel of the experience. You know, so there's like an augmented reality version of facade that we've built and have deployed a couple of places. And that, you know, and we've done a bunch of qualitative studies on how physically being embedded in the a set of the apartment with the project, you know, with the characters projected in a 3D space via, you know, a, a video see-through heads-up display and yada, yada, yada. Um, how does that actually change experientially versus desktop and keyboard? Um, and there were some counterintuitive results that came out of that. Um, and so similarly now, kind of a continuation of that line of work is to say, well, what if we do um, other kinds of interfaces than, than open uh, natural language and do, you know, and, and from a, even just from a sort of like menu system design perspective, there's some challenges because there are about um, 25 speech acts in facade um, and um, many of them are parameterized and the most parameterized, per the most parameterized ones will have like two to three parameters where some of the parameter ranges are like 20 choices for a parameter. And so then, so it becomes, you know, and also like when you type and hit return, as I said, sometimes you, you will often emit, you know, in, in implicitly multiple discourse acts at the same time that then sort of combine and get selected over. And so, which, you know, how do you do that with a menu? Do you like do three of them and then hit, you know, hit some commit key or do you, uh, so I think there will be some, you know, menu system design challenges. And I, and, and I think as it scales up, like, I, you know, in the future, I mean, Chris, you know, Crawford has claimed that he thinks there'll need to be like thousands of player verbs to create rich interactive stories. I'm not sure if you'll need thousands, but I think the number will be much bigger than 25 in future kind of AI-based interactive stories, which will make this menu selection problem even harder um, as, as a mechanism for, uh, for choosing an action. You know, if we, if we think the standard, you know, console controller with, you know, D-pad, two analogs, you know, four triggers, four buttons, uh, and then, you know, and possibly if it's six axis, you know, tilt, um, you know, that, well, you know, that's not nearly enough. <laughs> if you're going to have like, you know, 50 parameterized, you know, speech act things, it's going to, you're going to need like a, you know, an accordion. It's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, um, so actually I think in general, um, it, the, there's a lot of unsolved interface problems for interactive drama because also you can't back channel. You can't really smile. I mean, the parser actually understands emoticons. I mean, not many people do that, but you can, like, do an emoticon smile, and it means something to the characters, and that's, uh, but you can't, like, you know, sort of look away to indicate that you, you know, don't like what they're saying. You know, there's a lot of, um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of input problems left. Um, but, the, but we are exploring um, uh, speech uh, act selection mechanisms to see how they compare to typing. Another one that we've thought about that we're going to try is, uh, um, and this was a, a nice idea Andrew had, was um, uh, you type, you hit enter, um, it actually sort of like in, you know, in light gray at the bottom says what it's heard, and then you can either commit that, um, uh, or another alternative would be you don't show what it says, but when they react, you uh, can hit an instant a rewind button. So it's sort of, you know, facade sands of time, you know. <laughs> so, uh, and this breaks like naturalism, like this idea of, you know, it's like a black box theater stage play real time, you know, part of, you know, people have commented in facade, the characters really like hammer at you. It's hard to, um, hard to respond to them sometimes. And we wanted it purposely to feel kind of like a, an avalanche coming down on you and very inexorable and not enough time to think. And I mean, that was part of uh, the design goal. And this would sort of take that away now because there would be this sort of, you know, there would be these, this extra level of remove. Aha, I'll just rewind you, you know. Oh, I see what you heard me say. That's not what I meant at all. Or, you know, 
you know, pops up four choices. I think you said one of these four things, you know, select which one it is, you know, but, but we are actually going to try those to see, you know, that's, an, that's another alternative to keeping this, but, um, so. Michael, thank you. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs>